You look tired. I am tired. Like you haven't eaten. I haven't eaten. It's like you've been brushing your hair all morning. Wow, really? (laughs) (laughs) Ollie's been brushing their hair all morning. I it's kind of a disaster. Yeah. It's getting there though. Yeah, it is. You're working your way out of the badlands. I'm getting it cut soon anyways. Oh you are? Yeah, I'm getting it cut like Liv Moore's from uh iZombie. Oh really? Mm-hmm. Are you gonna go with a picture of Liv Moore? No, I'm just gonna tell them exactly. How- no, yes, of course. I well, am. I didn't know if you were gonna like if it was a specific style, and you were just giving me a cultural touchstone. So no, I knew I'm going into the picture of. Liv how Moore. short is that? Um, it's like here. Wow, you haven't had your hair that short since you were like eight, seven. I had a pixie cut, Dad. I know. I know you did. Yeah. But it's been a while since you've had a short. Yeah, short but hair that cut. was in like eighth grade. <laughs> yeah. So it hasn't been since I was eight or something. Oh, I see what you're saying. It's like, I know. I know you had pixie cut. Oh, oh, by the way, I'm Phil. And I'm Ollie. And... It's Del, Del Toro, Toro time. time. It's Del Toro time, everyone. And why are we sitting here this morning? Because we're starting to watch a movie. What movie are we starting to watch? Greed. Greed. Now, Greed is a movie from 1925. Eric von Stroheim. It's the last truly silent film we'll be experiencing. And what do you know about Greed? What is what is everything you know about Greed going into this? Zero percent. Well, you know something about it. It's four hours long <laughs> it's four hours long um uh i won't i don't want to drop too much of a knowledge bomb on you right now uh it's four hours long it was originally eight hours long mm-hmm. uh he wanted to release it as, an, as as at least two films as the story goes but the studio made him make drastic cuts he cut it down to four hours then they took it out of his hands and cut it down to drastically shorter um and he was very sad he said it was the greatest thing he'd ever made, and they ruined it. They took it away from him, and they killed it. And what we are about to watch is a four-hour recon. We're not going to watch it all in one sitting. That's a lot of movie for one sitting. We're going to watch it in halves uh, just so the audience knows how we're experiencing this. And what we're about to watch is the four-hour reconstruction that was done. So you are about to watch something very interesting in that much of the film – is going to be still images uh, because the film doesn't exist. It, it's considered the holy grail of lost films if anyone could ever find the missing footage. Um, but the construction was done, reconstruction was done very professionally. The professional film score uh, based on his script and his notes and what we have left. We have just, they just had a bunch of still images. So it's an interesting way to watch a movie. It's kind of how they reconstructed a lot of the lost Doctor Who episodes. Uh, but it works because his vision was so strong. I'm not, I don't want to color too much of your expectations. So based on that, what are your expectations going in? Okay, I'm not going to lie, they're pretty low. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not expecting much. I don't, I can barely sit through a hour and a half movie. Yeah. Um, And it's very hard to keep my attention. I'm very all over the place all the time. Yeah. I just did a, crazy squid impression yes. for those because you can't see um but i spend like most of my life staring at still images because i'm in school uh-huh it's basically what school is staring at pictures on a board 
<laughs> it is. <laughs> so, I mean, it can keep my attention as long as school does. <laughs> All right. Well, it could have been eight hours long as long as school is. I can't. I, I mean, at least four hours of my school day are spent doing music. So, yeah. Well, this has music. So maybe that'll. Uh... Yeah, but I'm not doing the music. Well, I am interested to see what you think when all is said and done. Uh, as long as it's interesting. I'm not going to color your perceptions by, by saying what my thoughts are. Uh, uh, for the audience, uh, this benefit, I have actually not watched this entire film. I only sampled it uh, just to make sure I had the right version and uh, to see what we were getting into going in. Just so oh, yeah. I... What are your expectations? What are my expectations? Uh, I mean... It's a little unfair because I've read so much about this movie, um, and I know the history of it. I know that, so I'm a bit colored just by the artist's passion going in. I expect it to be, I expect it to be fascinating and at least entertaining, and for the story to be. I know the story is odd and very, uh, very epic. So uh, that's you know, I I, ex I expect to appreciate the work that went into it, if nothing else. Uh, and that's all I'm really gonna say. Uh, I can't. I can't wait. Obviously, Guillermo del Toro thinks it's worth taking a look at, so there'll be something interesting in it. Uh, and uh, shall we begin? Mm -hmm. All right. You got your cup of ice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Ollie's like drinking water and eating ice as we go along. It's helping my mouth. I got my teeth cleaned yesterday, and my mouth is always really sore for the next two days, mm -hmm. and it's helping a lot. Good. Good. Well, if you're going to watch along at home, crack out that ice glass, get yourself a buttermilk biscuit, and pop in some greed, because we're about to stroll the heim. Cry. Cry. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes like we're chatting and it just sort of flows right into it. And it's well, whenever we have to like stop and actually do it, I feel a little more like, this is fake. This is a fake <laughs> thing to say. <laughs> hey, everybody. I'm Phil. And I'm Ollie. And it's, it's Del, Del Toro, Toro time. time. Yay, it's Del Toro time. Haru, hooray. Woo. And let's go back in time. Well, do, our do, last couple do, of episodes have... Do, Taken place. <laughs> what? Our last couple of episodes have taken place before this was made. Okay. Uh, well, let's go back in time from this point. Okay. And go back in time, but not as far back in time as we went before. Okay. So what have we done so far? We did... Axon. We did... Nosferatu. Nosferatu. And that's it, right? Those yeah. are the only two we've done. So we are at the third movie mm -hmm. of our Ecstasy of Influence list. We're hacking away at it. Hacksoning away at it. Witches. No witches in this one. Nope. No. Well, that we know of. No vampires in this one. That we that know, know of. of. <laughs> uh, but plenty of ghouls mm -hmm. and horror. Mm -hmm. uh, but in a far more like... Real way. Terrifying way. Like, in, in some ways, I don't know. This is, to me, this so far, like... Oh, no, it's one of our scariest movies. Yeah, the, the torture scenes in Haxon were pretty bad. Um, but we didn't actually see anything. Yeah, and that was a bit of a remove anyway, because mm -hmm. it was sort of pseudo-documentary. Mm -hmm. And the horror in Nosferatu was really stylish and creepy. I mean, Nosferatu was creepy, mm -hmm. but in a very, like, very weird way. 
This is a different movie altogether. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are we talking about? We're talking about greed. What's the movie called, though? Because <laughs> it's the title and it's the theme. Uh-huh. <laughs> From what year? From 1924. And who's the director? That one guy. Eric von Stroheim. So uh, this is our first... Uh, Sounds like a Blizzard character. It's a, he's a he is a character Eric von Stroheim like he's a when you ever whenever you see like cartoons of film directors from the early twenties and they have mm-hmm. like the jodhpurs and like the hat and mm-hmm. like the monocle and they're like I am a film director that's who you're that's who they're parodying is like Eric von Stroheim he was he, he was, was the film director he was the film director he created a character for himself he's one of those people who like. You're never really sure what's true about his life, even his actual name, because he just sort of built a mythology around himself. I mean, that's one way to do it. This is very, I was going to say a very successful way to do it, but Stroheim's an interesting character. He's mostly famous for, well, I won't say he's mostly famous for this movie, but he's very famous for having movies taken away from him and re-edited by studios. And Greed is like the biggest example of that, but Mm -hmm. it's by no means the first example of that um which sucks yeah i mean he he was known for taking movies and going way over budget and having these like outrageous uh ideas like about what he wanted them to be and then the studios getting ticked off at him because he was not an easy person to work with (laughs) like like it wasn't like he was like some put upon like artist He, he he brought a lot of it on himself um but yeah so he made uh he had had a couple of movies taken away from him, so he left mm-hmm. and went to Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM, to make Greed. And this movie ended up costing, I think, let's see, uh, it, had, it says it has a budget of $665,000, mm-hmm. which I guess in today's money would be... A lot of money. A lot of money. <laughs> and that was a lot of money back then. Um, and it took almost a year to make uh, under horrible conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the original cut came in at nine and a half hours. Yeah. Like nine and a half hours. And the studio was like, ha ha ha, ha 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 ha. Cut it. And so he cut it down to four hours and was like, we'll release it in two parts. Like, uh, uh, twilight part three, breaking bad, whatever it was called. What was the third twilight? How the heck would I know? Well, it's not like it's a secret film. Like I've how never. The, how would I know? Well, how would I know? <laughs> like I, I'm aware of movies. Like even if I don't see them, it's part of the culture, cultural zeitgeist. Also, it's definitely not called Breaking Bad because that's the name of a TV show about drugs. What was the name of that? Breaking Dawn was that the third one? Yes. Probably. Yeah, they split it into two parts. So he was like, "Let's release it in two parts," and they were like, "Ha ha ha! Oh, by the way, we're taking your movie away from you, and we're going to cut it down to like." Two hours and 20 minutes. Um, and he it broke his heart. Like, it broke his heart. Um, but he went on. He had a successful career. He was also an actor, a stage actor, a movie actor. He was nominated for Academy Award for his role in the movie Sunset Boulevard, which is not on our list, but you need to see Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> you will tr- it's a trip. It's such a great movie. Um, Billy Wilder film. And Eric von Stroheim is amazing in it. He plays a butler who is, like, harboring a secret. And... Uh, but uh, no, so so he makes this movie Greed, 
and it's cut down from a billion from 42 reels to like 10 reels and breaks his heart and everyone who saw the 42 reel version basically said I don't know what did they say <laughs> <laughs> They basically said this movie's incredibly long and no one will ever sit through it but it's amazing like I think one of the most telling things someone said was that characters and plot points would get introduced and then dropped and you'd be like well, what was the point of that and then like six hours later it would be resolved in an at an amazing point in the film and you'd be like oh it totally paid off like he said they were like the whole movie was like a series of long setups but amazing payoffs but that no one was ever going to be able to sit through it like it's just way too long i could barely sit through the four-hour version you did a great job sitting through <laughs> it you did a great job sitting through it and at the end of it we did sit, we did it well we'll get to the our final thoughts on it but uh but because this is based on a novel called mm-hmm. called mcteague yes mac mcteague and it's probably was originally the most faithful adaptation of a novel ever at the at that point mm-hmm. and this is coming from an era when like novel adapt novel adaptations could be pretty loosey-goosey as far as like whether or not it's legitimately based on the novel or not well it can also be pretty loosey-goosey Today, today, <laughs> especially <laughs> considering that McTeague has been adopted, adapted into a couple of films since then, which only bear a slight resemblance to the original novel. But uh, I, I didn't realize this. This is this. This was actually the second time McTeague had been adapted. There's a lost film that was based on McTeague uh, that was supposed to be really good, but as as is sadly the case with most fi- most films that were made before like 1950 are just gone forever. Like the 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 silver nitrate in the film dissolved the film print and they just crumbled into dust and we'll never see those movies again. We have like stills from a few of them. We had stills from greed because unfortunately all the excise footage was destroyed Mm -hmm. and that was the version we saw. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about the version we watched. Well, you want me to go into plot or just, just like what was like, like how they reconstructed this movie. So they wanted to, restore it to being full four hours long so but of course they didn't have any of the footage so instead of cutting their losses they were like well we'll just input the stills from these scenes and people will have to deal with that yeah yeah they found uh they found von stroheim's uh shooting script which everyone mm-hmm. thought it was lost they found all these stills but they didn't just show the pictures. Like they they put in transitions mm-hmm. and they uh, they tried to make it as cinematic as possible. It worked. It worked. It, it was it worked amazingly. I I thought it worked really well. It did. It, the idea was to give you an idea of what his original cut was like. So mm-hmm. obviously, like scenes are very short that would have been very long before, and they're like bridged with like just sort of they put in narration from the novel, which I thought was cool. Yeah. Like you, and it would say at the bottom like uh like F N I think mm-hmm. from Frank Norris was the original writer and uh they would you know just sort of like fill in what was going on but it were like it you could tell that he had made this epic film he'd shot almost everything on location the the mine he shot in the beginning was the actual mine frank norris based the mine on in the book uh the the dentist's office on the second floor is an actual dentist's office that's cool that still exists today apparently uh, that you can like visit, I guess, if you wanted to re- relive your favorite scenes from Greed. Um, I'm good. I'm I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> like uh, he filmed in Death Valley for months. Like it was in, in 
the, the sequence lasted for months. Uh, granted, it's a little unfair. By the time we got to the Death Valley sequence, we were kind of worn out. By and all, we had like two minutes until by, everyone came home. By all the McTeagueiness. Um, but yeah, it's a movie that kind of wears you down. Like it's especially in the last hour, it gets relentless as far as like just how grim it gets. But uh, just a dy- dynamite production. And I would say that you do get a good sense of how how grand the scope was all mm-hmm. the characters all their little stories um but speaking of the characters and all their little stories what's this movie about insanity <laughs> brought on by greed which was brought on by money which is in the form of gold jold <laughs> and so the movie's in black and white obviously but every time you see gold it's gold yeah how so how do you mean it's gold like the color yes yeah. <laughs> hand painted mm-hmm. on the cells um which i didn't realize this uh for the reconstruction that they did they actually went in and hand painted in the same style he would have done to make it look as authentic as possible like they didn't use digital stuff like they did it as closely as possible to how von stroheim would have hand colored the was it the coins would have been gold mm-hmm. what else was gold uh the birds oh yeah anytime you saw the the gold birds um the giant like the tooth. giant tooth the gold plates and stuff yeah um so what happens in this story a lot of things <laughs> what's the basic plot mcteague is a man who went from mining to dentistry he falls in love with this woman who's dating his friend marcus marcus is like okay whatever um he gets married uh the woman's not very happy about it um trina trina's not very happy about it she they their marriage kind of starts falling apart after he gets a letter that says he's been practicing dentistry badly (laughs) without a license without a license but (laughs) badly you're a terrible dentist (laughs) um and then he they fall into poverty but meanwhile she She's won $5,000 in the lottery, the illegal lottery. Um, She starts, after they fall into poverty, he goes crazy. She starts hoarding money, and then he kills her, and he dies in the desert. (laughs) (laughs) And then what is Marcus's story? Marcus is in love with Trina, who is his, like, cousin cousin 50 times removed or something <laughs> i don't even know but they're they're definitely cousins mm-hmm. um he finds out that she wins five thousand dollars he gets angry he tries to kill mcteague he then runs off yeah, he leaves the city to start a new life yeah after telling the dentist board of the board of dentistry yes that mcteague is um, illegally practicing being a dentist and then he finds out that trina's dead he goes after mcteague to get the five thousand dollars and what happens to marcus he dies in the desert (laughs) and uh but so those are your two main kind of plot threads is mcteague and trina and then marcus's like sort of background story and i think in the original original like studio hack job that's your basic plot like mcteague and his marriage crumbling because of their obsession with money and then marcus like trying to get sort of revenge um, but then there's two other sort of plot threads that run through the main movie that in the restoration. Uh, tell us about the old couple. I can't remember their names. Yeah, they are Mr. Uh, 
Mr. Grannis uh-huh. and Ms. Baker. Okay. Well, Mr. Grannis and Ms. Baker have been neighbors for a long time, but they've never interacted with each other. But they know they're in love with each other. So they slowly start having little interactions here and there, and they fall in love, and they live happily ever after. And it is amazing. It is amazing. And what does Mr. Grannis do for a living? He binds books. No, what does he do for a living? I, was, I forgot all about this because it's only mentioned in the beginning of the movie. And then what? four hours later, you're like, what did he do for a living? He ran a dog hospital. Oh, do you remember the yeah. dog hospital? Like, first of all, I was like, is there such thing as a dog hospital? And I, I guess there is. Like, I, I just assumed that, like, no one took care of dogs back then. Like, I just thought, like, if your pet got sick, like, in 1924, like, in this middle of a city, like, that was it. But... In the novel, too, it's like, no, he ran a dog hospital. It was a little, like, ramshackle, but he took care of dogs, and he, like, nursed dogs back to health. What a nice old man. Yeah, and I guess he originally, he employed Marcus. Okay, that makes sense, then. Yeah, that was, like, kind of their their kind of tie. And they all live in this tenement together. Like, yeah. It's, like, this, like, nice-ish apartment building. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's the same building where the dentist office is. Yeah. Uh, but because their plot line was cut from the initial studio edit uh you didn't get like when we were watching it and it kept coming back to them they're sort of there as like a relief from all the horror that's going down Mm -hmm. because there's horror going down and uh then you cut back all just when you think you can't take it anymore it cuts back to mr granis and it's just so sweet and then it stops cutting back to them yes because they live happily ever after they literally get to live happily ever after. It's literally, they have a long-lasting, long-awaited marriage that lasts until they die. Yeah. I guess a few years later. Damn, Dad. <laughs> well, they are very old people in the movie. Um, but they're very nice and nothing bad happens to them at all. Now, speaking of very nice couples that nothing bad ever happens to, let's talk about Maria, Miranda, Makafa, and Zerkov, or Zerkow. Let's talk about this happy couple. Who are these happy ones? Happy, happy, happy times. Well, Maria is a woman who, I guess, collects things that people don't want and sells them to Zerk. Zerkov? Zerkow? I'm assuming it's Zerkov. I guess. Um, And they get, like, she keeps talking about these golden, like, pure gold dishes. And, like, Zerkow is, like, obsessed. And they get married. And then she refuses to tell him where they are. And he kills her? Yeah. Like, there's something going on with Maria. Like, you're never really sure, like, if she's all there in the head. And she talks about when she was a girl, her family was super rich. And they had these, like, million-dollar, like, service trays. Like, solid gold. And this guy, Zerkow, Zerkov, is, like, obsessed with them. And he believes her. Yeah, and then but eventually she starts saying like, "What are you even talking about? I never mentioned any plates." And he's like, "You told me about the plates." And then one day, I guess I think it's Trina walks yeah. in and finds Maria dead, throat slit, in a great shot of like it's like backlit, it's like all shat in shadow. It's pretty amazing mm-hmm. looking. And then they find Zerkov dead in the river. Yeah. Holding a bag of like tin cans and stuff. Like, yeah, like just tin plates. And you don't really know like 
what led him there or well, how he drowned? I I assume that he he broke and he went to the junkyard and thought he found the golden stuff, but it was really just tin. And then he realized what he had done and committed suicide. I guess. I guess it's a mystery. It's pretty horrible, though. They pull him out of the water and he looks terrible. Um, he lives in a mansion made of junk. Which is amazing. Is this giant ramshackle like Sanford and Son-esque? And it's cheap now. What do you mean? Because someone died in it. Oh, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, McTeague and Trina end up living in it later on when they basically become the Maria and Zerkov later on in the movie. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the walrus men. Let's talk about the men who are half walrus. <laughs> they're pretty great. <laughs> I, don't, they, I don't know if they have any like specific plot line, but they're pretty great. There's these two guys who pop up throughout the movie. They're kind of just like one of them's the butcher. Mm-hmm. And he is a giant man. He is a large man, and we, we're saying he walrusman because he has this mustache yes. that looks like walrus tusks. Yeah, he has a walrus face, and he's kind of nice. Like he's nice to McTeague. He leads him back into drinking. Well, he leads him to drinking. Right, right. Well, he. Kinda... Well, I don't think he realizes that that's a bad thing. No, 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 no. He's not like trying to be like Lampwake from Pinocchio. He's just. He's just there and he's trying to like, hey, I'll buy you a drink. And McTeague's like, I'm trying not to drink. And he's like, drink. And so they have a drink and that's the end. So basically he's a frat boy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He's just, he's just a local, he's a successful business person. Mm -hmm. Um, He's just trying to be nice, but I don't know. He pops up throughout. I like the walrus man. There's another guy too who, I don't know what his job is. He's another large man with the walrus mustache. I think he's one of Tina's relatives, Trina's relatives. Oh, is he? Yeah. Because he's, because he's. Well, there's only we only see one walrusman at the end of the movie. Oh, that's true. <clears throat> Let's talk about Trina's relatives. They're the best. So you've got this, like, I guess, German family mm-hmm. um, who you know that they are German because they speak, quote unquote, speak. It's all subtitles because it's a or intertitles because it's a silent film. But like in broad comic accents. Um, but, but they're very like american patriotic yes yeah it's got this like turn of the century like let's wave our flags and go on picnics and the father is hilarious he's like those three kids they got these three like toe-headed triplets i guess they are um the lollipop brigade they look like the lollipop guild from lollipop guild that's what it's called why do i want to say brigade Um, i don't know they're not a brigade (laughs) i mean oh maybe in times of war (laughs) the lollipop guild will arm themselves but uh with lollipop swords yeah maybe thinking of the lullaby league no yes i'm mixing the two guild and league up when you met when you put a guild in a league it becomes a brigade no but it just it just sounds like those two mushed together okay (laughs) yes the lollipop guild and the lullaby league okay and then the coroner who must divert he thoroughly examined her She's not only merely dead, she's really quite sincerely dead or something. <laughs> Wizard of Oz. In any case, it's a boisterous family. She loves them. She gets along with them. We should mention that Trina is played by the amazing Zasu Pitts. Describe Zasu Pitts for our audience. Amazing. <laughs> Tell us about her face. It's beautiful. But it's so like... It's so like... Like what is it it's so like um 
expressive. It's expressive. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> it like can turn on a dime. Mm-hmm. Like she's do, she does stuff in the backgrounds of scenes while characters are talking to like I I can't I'm making faces right now but like she's she's a comic actress like Zasu mm-hmm. Pitts was known for comedy and then Von Stroheim cast her in this as like the tragic Trina and it works because she goes bazonkers and really sells it with her face well it's funny if you watch her in the beginning she's so pretty and she looks so young and like so innocent and like oh like sort of frightened at mcteague and by the end of it she's terrifying Mm -hmm. in her like obsession and maniacal like i don't know we'll talk about her like what causes her to break but i love zasu pitts she's just an amazing part of this movie mm-hmm. like would it have been the same without her no. like with someone else no yeah like if you cast like a dramatic actor it just would have been wrong like they would have been too the movie is sort of steeped in realism like von stroheim was going for gritty realism but it's got this like sort of heightened representational acting style because it's mm-hmm. silent film um speaking of giant representational acting let's talk about gibson gowland goland gibson Mr. Goland. Who? He played McTeague. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Who you find out near the end is named John McTeague. John Doc McTeague, as they show in his wanted poster. I still call him Mac McTeague. Mac McTeague. Sounds like a DuckTales character. That's what Trina's been calling him, Mac, so it's just Mac McTeague to me. And it's confusing because there's Marcus, who people call Mark, and they call him Mac, and... In the intertitles, I get kind of confused every once in a while. But let's talk about Gibson Gullen, who's an enormous man. He's a giant man. Uh, he we have was... our walrus man, our giant man. <laughs> and we get to some lanky men later mm-hmm. on. Uh, so Gibson is huge mm-hmm. and terrifying. And I don't think he was known for playing bad guys. He was a uh, like a sort of a self-made actor. He was British. Uh, came to America and got known for this role. Um, and he went on to do stuff later on. Apparently, he was a really nice guy. Um, he put up with Eric von Stroheim. So he's, uh, he put up with filming in the... Um, Death Valley. Death Valley for months. Uh, but what did you think of his performance? He's strong. Yeah. And he made a decent dentist. How so? If he, he's not smart. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't really look too deep into McTeague's character, to be honest. Well, he doesn't come across as very bright. No. But he, but he's clever because, mm-hmm. I mean, he tricks everyone into thinking that he's a legit dentist. He's successful. Mm-hmm. Um, he can do everything correctly. Yeah, which is one of those, like, he studied under a, who they refer to as a charlatan, like this traveling dentist who would come to towns and pull teeth for show. Which and then he he apprenticed under him like as a traveling dentist, but then he decided to go legit. Mm-hmm. So you assume that like mm-hmm. he learned everything he needed to know from this guy and just kind of picked up the rest of it from books or like to study. No, he was too dumb to read the books. That's what it says in the novel. But he knows how to fix Trina's tooth. She so he meets Trina uh, because she's broken her tooth on a swinging accident. Do you remember that? Like Marcus pushes her too hard on the swing and she like goes flying off. <laughs> She cracks her tooth. He's like, your tooth will have to come out and the one next to it. And she's no, she's like, no, I don't want to be disfigured. Like, I don't. She's not vain, but she doesn't want to have two teeth missing. And so he spends literally weeks 
rebuilding this too. They, all it says in the movie is that he spends weeks doing it. And I was like, oh, what was he doing for weeks? But in the novel, it says that, uh, like he had to like do like an implant and then like wait for it to like grow in and then like bind it to another tooth. Like it goes into like detail. Like he knows his business. Mm-hmm. He's not a bad dentist and he saves her tooth, mm-hmm. which I was like, good on you. Like, Unfortunately, what else happens while Trina is under the gas? <laughs> um. Does he tell her stories? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> he becomes infatuated with her in a non-healthy way. Mm-hmm. He visibly struggles with this infatuation. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of like hands to the side of the head and shaking and gnashing of teeth because he wants to touch her which we know is creepy and the filmmaker knows is creepy again and we pointed this out to each other like throughout the movie at no point is eric von stroheim saying that anything mcteague does is acceptable like socially acceptable Mm -hmm. like he's not sold as like a misunderstood hero he's he's sold as like a degenerate who just gets worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And he tries to keep himself from assaulting Trina while she's under the gas and he fails. Yeah. He kisses her. I mean, he doesn't do anything but kiss her, but he still kisses her while she's unconscious. Which is gross. And then he feels terrible because he's kind of a... He kind of hates himself anyway. Like, I don't think McTeague has, like, the highest self-esteem. Well, I mean, he was... Like, this is where we have to get into his backstory. Oh, yeah. What's his backstory? He grew up in, like, a small rural town. Like a mining community. Yeah. And his dad was a drunk. His mom was unable to provide because the dad wasted all their money on alcohol. And women. And women. Toothless women. Well, it's Uh, true. Like, the woman he was hanging out with only had, like, one tooth. Yeah. And so, like, he was probably, like physically and emotionally abused by the dad yeah he didn't find any support in the mom because she just as soon as she could sent him off packing like he has not had an easy life yeah it's one of those things where like if the mom hadn't sent him off packing he would have just grown up like his father in the mining community did anyway which he does anyway and that's kind of so there's this like i think it's called naturalism was this artistic movement at the time so last time we talked about expressionism which was hey we can't visibly show the internal lives of people, so we'll show it graphically. Uh, naturalism was kind of the exact opposite. It was, hey, we should only show and tell you what really happens to people in these stories and in these movies. And unfortunately, it was also tied in with a complete misunderstanding of Darwinism. Mm-hmm. So people were like, oh, well... I guess if you're born to bad people, you're just going to be bad, period, full stop. You have no choice. Nothing you do in life will ever do anything but lead you down a life of debauchery and sadness. That's that's why the poor exist, I guess. has nothing to do with social structures, nothing to do with like being caught that's in like social a, Darwinism. Yeah, and it's false. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. It is not a real thing. Like no. there's so many more factors. Um, but that's what the that's what sort of McTeague is based on this notion that he was doomed from the beginning, which kind of makes it a Greek tragedy. Like, well, I mean, in, in the sense that he is 
hoist by his own failings like yeah. his own personal failings are as much as he tries to run from his fate it will no matter what he does he will always cause it yes yes and that's exactly what happens uh there's this great scene in the excised footage where he goes to he tries to take trina to a uh a, a play mm-hmm. or he does take her to a play and he gets into a weird argument with the ticket taker or the ticket seller where he's like, I want to see, like, I want to sit far away from the orchestra because the band's too loud, so put me on the right. And the guy's like, the right facing the stage or the right facing the audience? He's like, the right facing the stage. He's like, well, then that'll put you next to the orchestra. He's like, I want to be on the right. He's like, the guy's like, well, you want to be on the left. And they get into it, and he ends up, like, getting violent. And so, but it's, I think he gets violent because he's he feels like he's being made to look stupid. Mm-hmm. Like, McTeague tries to be a good person. Mm-hmm. Like he stops drinking. He doesn't want to be like his father. But again, the movie keeps saying. Too bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Maria, the, the the woman who thinks she used to be a millionaire or have a bunch of magic plates or gold plates. Not magic, plates. <laughs> magic plates. She also sells lottery tickets. Mm-hmm. I don't know. They say in the story, right, that it's illegal. Yeah. Don't they? Mm-hmm. But it's still a $5,000 lottery, so it can't be that ill. I don't understand, like, Trina enters the lot. She buys a ticket just to make Maria go away. Yeah. And then she wins $5,000. Which is, how much money did we figure out today? $71,000. The equivalent of winning $71,000. Uh, in 1924, or whenever this was supposed to be, a few years before 1924, a good chunk of change mm-hmm. probably at the time the movie was supposed to take place because the movie goes over several years probably at least a hundred thousand dollars and since it goes over several years we can assume the great depression has happened at some point no the great depression doesn't happen until the end of the 20s right okay this is the this is the roaring 20s we're still in the roaring 20s which is one of the reasons von stroheim made this movie and i'll just read this little quote uh he said he was not going to compromise i felt that after the last war the motion picture going public had tired of the cinematic chocolate eclairs which had been stuffed down their throat. I felt they were ready for a large dose of plebeian but honest corned beef and cabbage. I felt they had become weary of insipid Pollyanna stories with their doll-like heroines steeped in eternal virginity and their hairless, flat-chested, sterile heroes who were as lily-white as the heroines. I had graduated from the D.W. Griffith School of Filmmaking and intended to go the master one better as regards film realism. I knew that everything could be done with film, the only medium which could reproduce life as it really was. Nah, sorry, I, I love that quote. He did study under D.W. Griffith, who was a virulent racist and brought the KKK back into modern popular culture, but uh, he was also a good filmmaker. <laughs> We're not going to like forgive him for his many sins, but Von Stroheim appeared in a couple of his movies and uh, learned and took the lessons he learned from uh, D.W. Griffith and built them up mm-hmm. um and didn't make horribly racist films i guess maria is mexican or they say she's mexican but no one really knows for sure because we can't hear her speak right and she introduces herself as a uh maria like how does she say she's like we we assume she has like that stereotypical like accent i guess right she says she's maria miranda macapa maria miranda macapa and she has a flying squirrel. Or she, when she was a child, she had a flying squirrel. Yeah, so she compulsively says, when I was a child, I had a flying squirrel after she introduces herself. So you're not sure, A, if she ever really owned a flying squirrel, and B, if that's really her name. Like, that, you know, like that's, that's, she's just, she's 
in the vernacular, well, I guess she's like darker skinned, but no one really seems sure of who she is or where she came from or even how old she is. Um, doesn't she get pregnant? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she loses the baby, and it's like one of the most incredibly sad moments in the film. You see her clutching this tiny coffin and like... Dry- I think that's the part where... I think... Because that was the point where she forgot about the dishes. You're right. You're right. It's like that snapped her out of whatever. Her fantasy. So she was married to Zerkov, Zerkow, who only married her because he wanted those dishes, I guess. She gets pregnant. She loses the baby. The kids have a baby funeral parade. There's a little boy you see with like a sousaphone throughout the movie. And they have a little funeral parade for her. And then, yeah, then she never mentions. She, that's when she's like, yeah, you're right. Huh. That's an interesting, such an interesting character. She comes to a bad end. Speaking of bad ends, we were talking about uh, Trina's lottery win. Mm-hmm. So what does she do with the $5,000? She invests it in her uncle's store. Yeah. For which she's making Noah's Ark animals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Trina has this little business on the side. She invests money in her uncle's store. And I guess they live off the interest. Mm-hmm. And McTeague has a successful dentistry. And then he loses his dentistry business. And she won't... Spend money. Yeah. She won't touch any of that money. And she starts... Like hiding money mm-hmm. that she's getting she's like saving she says she's saving for him but she won't tell him about the money like she talks to herself and what does she do with the money when she takes it out of the she holds it yeah and like cleans it yeah and like shines it and polishes it like it's weird like it's obsessive mm-hmm. the we were talking earlier that reviews of this movie always refer to her as a miser they're like and then she wins all this money and becomes a miser but she doesn't strike me as miserly no what does it seem more like um well i thought it was obsessive compulsive disorder brought on by her husband's abuse mm-hmm. um you think that it was the one thing she could control and she wasn't gonna let that go yeah so it does seem like some sort of mental illness mm-hmm um, like you said, like obsessive compulsive, like when she <clears throat> she always has to check and make sure it's there and she polishes each coin individually and then puts it all carefully back. Mm-hmm. It's very like a ritualistic almost. As soon as he exits the house, she she has it in a steamer trunk with a false bottom. Uh, I see it as like you said, like she's in this relationship that is spiraling out of control that she never wanted to be in in the first place. Right. Like, she agrees to marry McTeague after, like, a weird courtship. Like, they kind of get along, but then Marcus is gone out of her life, and... She does not want to be alone with him. Yeah, like, on the wedding night. Oh. She begs her mother to stay, and her mother leaves, and then she's left alone with McTeague, who, like, stalks her around the house. Uh, and there's there was some discussion between us as to whether they had actually consummated the marriage ever i don't think they had yeah she never gets pregnant and it doesn't he doesn't seem like he would understand what to do heck he just he he's he's he he can't kiss her he doesn't know how to kiss or do like i don't know like you're i think you're right like it just seems like maybe they just never got i don't think she would let him get close enough to to be honest yeah i mean you don't want to think that he forced himself on her. I don't know if he did. I don't think he did. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it went there. Because I think, 
because at that point she was pretty like strong yeah there's another school of thought though and i was reading about this that they had actually that she got married to him because they had actually had premarital sex there's a scene where he's kissing her in an alley and it's left ambiguous as to what happens after that and some people think it maybe she got married because she had let him have sex with her and then she felt like well now i gotta marry you but then she didn't want to do it again like it's very vague i mean it's a movie made in 1924 like obviously they're not going to go into it but uh but it's it's there's a weird gross physical subtext there it's that's never exploited i don't feel like it's sort of used just to show like this is not good and it's not starting well yeah it's really uncomfortable to watch like the two actors are great they're great they're great together Mm -hmm. like it's physically repulsive to see them in the same room but yeah so she starts like she hoards all this money they move into like worse and worse living conditions he can't find work because he's lost his license no place will hire him and uh then the walrus man brings him into the bar and convinces him to start drinking again and that's Mm -hmm. when things really get back because then he gets physically violent and what does he do to her when he attacks her? He bites her fingers. Yeah, it's super creepy. He like just puts them in his mouth. It's like, ang, 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 ang. and like he has this like grin on his face. And that doesn't end up well either. No. Because what happens? She has to get her fingers cut off. Why? Because they got infected. It's so gross. And they do this like color tinting on the film of purple and like bruise coloring on her hand. And then they do like this like special effect. Like obviously her fingers are just folded down, but you see the amputated fingers. Like they're there. Like, and she has to get a job cleaning at a kindergarten. kindergarten. And by this point, McTeague has left. He's run off with her money. With the four hundred and fifty dollars she had she, saved, up. she had saved up. But then she takes out her five thousand dollars. Yeah, much to the consternation of her uncle. <laughs> that's an uncomfortable scene well he's like if you're gonna take half of it just take all of it which i was like why why yeah why i was take, like why not. take half why get... i think he was just mad at her like that she was pulling money from the investment i don't know i i he was angry at her he made her take all the money which she then like she's living i guess living in the kindergarten mm-hmm. laying naked on her all of her money and that's when mcteague mcteague returns Let's talk about her hair for a second. Ooh, let's talk about her hair. What about it? It's amazing. It's the best. It is so long. It is so long. Do you think it was a hair piece, like a wig? I assume so. I'm assuming Zazu. Zazu, yeah. Zazu didn't actually grow her hair out like 10 feet. But what does she do? Because she has it up in the beginning of the movie. Mm -hmm. It's enormous. And you were like, her hair is enormous. (laughs) And then she lets it down. On the wedding. Yeah. And we're like, oh, she's Samara from the ring. Yeah. <laughs> and then her face starts looking like Samara from the ring. She, uh, and her hair kind of shows her progression of character, like, as it gets, like, wilder and wilder throughout the film. Yeah. No, you were, you were, you were quick to point out the lovely Zasu Pitts' this hair. Um, not lovely hair by the end of it, but, uh, the hair. Mm-hmm. Because what happens by the end of it? He returns and is homeless and hungry. She refuses to give him any money. Or food. Yeah. Because 
He bit off her fingers. And also, like, stole all of her stuff. Yeah. And made her life a living hell. Yeah. Um, so he comes back to the kindergarten one night. Mm-hmm. And what does he do? He kills her. But how does he kill her? You, you know, pointed this out. You th- you pointed this out. What did I point out? Didn't you say that he bit the rest of her fingers? Yeah, he bit the rest of her fingers off. Yeah. I didn't quite catch that, but you were the one who was like, look at the tinting on the picture. Oh, they were bones protruding from the... Uh, it was a grisly scene. Like they cool, don't... Though. Yeah. He, he kills her horribly in the kindergarten by and then she's like under the tree or something didn't i say that you said did he leave her under the christmas tree because it's christmas time of course it's christmas well mcteague says during christmas nothing can go wrong and i'm assuming that's why i planned it for like christmas eve yeah and then like he leaves her body there and we made a joke about like I hope those kids don't find her in the morning. And then what happens? The kids find her in the morning. It's not a good time <laughs> for anyone. For the poor That's why I assume she's under the Christmas tree. Yeah, it's it was pretty nightmarish. So McTeague runs off. Of course, they know it was McTeague. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's like, oh, this woman was killed by her ex-husband or her husband. Um, he flees. He goes back to the mine where he grew up mm-hmm. to get a job there. and But he gets this like sixth sense. When people are after him, and so he keeps... I assume it's just him being paranoid. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But uh, so he keeps staying. He's one step ahead of everyone because he keeps running before they can catch up to him. And that's when Marcus sees the wanted poster. Mm-hmm. And he, like, joins, like, a bunch of, like, deputies. Let's talk about Marcus's shirt. Let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. It's this dad shirt. It is a dad shirt. <laughs> it's, like, floral... And, like, it has, like, hearts on the, like, show elbow pads. It's, like... He's dressed... I said this. This wasn't a cultural touchstone for you. But he's dressed like Marty McFly in Back to the Future 3. He looks like a space cowboy. I'm assuming it's because without it, we wouldn't have been able to tell him apart from everyone else. Yeah, you didn't want him to look like a, like a, like a right, just one other dirty cowboy. But also, like, I think it speaks to, like, Marcus was probably a bad ranch hand. Like... Marcus as a character was very n- nice at times. Like he didn't strike me as like a totally bad person. He made a bunch of mistakes and regretted them and was kind of immature and didn't know how to handle like his regrets. He attacks McTeague throughout. He throws a knife at McTeague's head at one point. That was unwarranted. The rest of it was pretty warranted. <laughs> he ratted McTeague out to the board of dentistry. Which was a kind of jerky thing. Which to was do. a jerk thing to do. It ended up ruining McTeague's life. Um, he didn't have to do. It. He was what what keeps him from being totally sympathetic is he does it because he gets jealous that he basically feels like he gave Trina to McTeague, and then right after that happens, Trina wins the five thousand dollar lottery. Like, so he feels like the five thousand dollars was supposed to be his. So he's not as pure as the driven snow. He's not like this like gentleman. He's pretty much a psychopath. Well, yeah. Not, not a psychopath. No. More of a sociopath. I think, I mean, I don't even, he has a lot of strong feelings. And I think he had a lot of strong feelings for Trina. I think he's just completely emotionally immature and a big, like. I think almost every character in this has some sort of mental issue. They're like, they're all, hem- I compared it a lot to Carousel, mm-hmm. uh, which 
a lot of people criticize for being regressive in its politics and like your main female character like going along with like a spousal abuser and like like a lot like telling her daughter or whoever that like being hit by her husband is okay and my defense of that story has always been that the voice of the author isn't being hit by your husband is okay. It's the, the, the point of the story being is these are people in dire circumstances with very limited options in their lives and every single option is bad. Mm-hmm. And so you've got to choose the one that's going to basically keep you alive the longest happiness be darned and darned. And that to me is what McTeague kind of is, mm-hmm. is it's not that these are just a bu- it's not that it's a bunch of just bad people. It's a bunch of people, many of whom are trying to be good people, mm-hmm. but who have so few options in life. Right maybe because of their education, because of like where they were born, because of the way they were treated, because of just society doesn't let you rise up above a certain position unless it deems you worthy. So they're trying to get by and trying to make smart choices, but there just aren't any good choices for most of them, except like Marcus, who could have just like gone on to be as successful as he was going to be. But I mean, he had like a his family was doing OK mm-hmm. in the beginning. He could have just moved off with them and. Bye. Live happily ever after. Yeah, because Trina's family moves away. Yeah. And eventually they start doing, I guess, poorly because they're asking for money. But uh, but yeah, like it's not a bunch of like evil people. It's a bunch mm-hmm. of people who are backed into corners and don't have any like don't have the resources they need to like except for the old people get out except for the old people um who don't make any choices until the right choice presents itself (laughs) and the right choice is right there and they live happily ever after and they kiss and it's super sweet um speak. and there's that one there's the scene with them like on the bench and it's all colored in that's right when they finally reach happiness they get a full color shot it's amazing mm-hmm. uh fully hand colored picture of the two of them and you were like what because <laughs> it's so jarring to your eyes to see like this beautiful full color picture um speaking of couples that come to know a good let's talk about let's talk about starting in the very beginning all the way through the end the birds right what's the first thing we see mcteague do pick up a bird (laughs) well a hurt bird a hurt bird and and kiss it (laughs) our first interaction with mcteague is him kissing a bird like crazy he saves a bird that's in the path of like the uh the mine cars Mm -hmm. on the ground he kisses it and kisses it and kisses it and we're like oh he's like a gentle giant and then a guy comes and knocks the bird out of his hand. And what does McTeague do? <laughs> throws him off a cliff. He throws him off a cliff. Man survives. Man survives. But it's a great introduction to our hero because we're like, okay, he's a gentle giant fit to bouts of extreme anger. <laughs> but birds become a theme. Mm-hmm. Well, can I talk about the, th- the scene of the throwing of the bird in the first part? It's hilarious. <laughs> what, what do you mean? So he gets the bird knocked out of his hand. Yeah. But it's obviously not a real bird. <laughs> so you just kind of see this dead weight just kind of ricochet off into the background. Bap. <laughs> and it's hilarious in my opinion. Bear in mind that it may have very well have been a real bird. 
That was not a real bird. 1924. I'm like, it may have been real at one point <laughs> before it went through several takes. Um, but so what? So birds they'll become like a theme throughout mm-hmm. this movie. And what are they sort of symbol? Well, what is a what is the point of a bird in a coal mine anyway, or a, a mine? Canary anyway? in a coal mine. What is um, what is the whole point of that? When if you're in a coal mine and the uh, canary stops singing, you have to get out because it's poison gas or whatever. Well, the bird dies. Yeah. Like the bird's gonna die before you do because it's mm-hmm. so small, and then you get it, you get the heck out. Yeah. So that's kind of what the birds do in this movie because he always has two birds in a bird cage, and in the second half of the film it becomes really symbolic because what happens he brings them with him well what about the cat so there's this cat Mm -hmm. that comes around when marcus comes around for the last time and it tries to attack the birds and that's when marcus is attacking them well he comes in he's like i just came by to say goodbye like no hard feelings right pal but the whole time you're watching this cat creep up on the birds, and you were like, that cat is Marcus. <laughs> I don't pull any shots when I'm talking about symbolism. <laughs> well, the movie doesn't pull many punches when it's symbol- sim- symbolizing things. Um, but then, because then what? the cat doesn't get the birds. Mm-mm. But then, right away. But then what happens? The birds start attacking each other. Yeah. That's crazy. Like, it's heavy handed symbolism. But it's kind of cool, like, because it really actually kind of cranks up the tension. Because then you start really paying attention to those birds. Um, he murders Trina. Mm-hmm. He goes on the run. He ends up in Death Valley for a long time. It's actually not that long of a time film wise, but again, we were like running out of time to watch the movie, and we were like, and Come on. nothing was happening. <laughs> and it's hand tinted um, yellow, like so it looks even hotter. It was like that scene in Nosferatu with the friggin' boat and the horse. <laughs> God. It was like that scene in that if we had been watching this in a movie theater, we probably would have been very patient with it. But because we were like just waiting for the, we knew what was coming. We we're like, come on, come on, come on. So he's running through Death Valley. He's running out of water. It's He looks terrible because he was terrible because the actors were literally dying in Death Valley. Marcus joins a posse to go after him. The posse isn't going to go through Death Valley. But Marcus is like, I'm not part of you officially. I can do whatever I want. And he goes after him. And they're like, haha, what a doof. And what does he do with it? McTeague comes upon the last uh, watering hole. And he like, we figured out that. He's been filling them up. Yeah. As Which he was goes dumb. Along. It was dumb. Why? Because like, what if he ran out of water? Well, I don't think he was going to be turning around and going back. Like, he's just going to have to keep going straight ahead. But, yeah, so Marcus is going after. Marcus runs out of water, and there's no water to be had because McTeague's been filling in the watering holes. Um, And then McTeague, they're basically almost dead. McTeague lays down to go to sleep. Marcus's horse dies. He walks the rest of the way. And McTeague's asleep or passed out. Marcus collapses. (laughs) crawls towards him yeah and puts a gun in his face and you were like finally he's gonna kill mcteague get it over with but then what happens he's like where's the five thousand dollars yeah and then he just gets annoying (laughs) well what happens mcteague is like it's over here well first he's like where's water right he's always on my horse then the horse runs off and mcteague says the horse ate some 
poisonous weed, you're going to have to kill it. So Marcus, I'm sure it made sense to Marcus because he was delirious with the sun. But he's like, all right. So he. Oh, okay. I figured something out. So he opens fire on the horse, kills it, goes over. Of course, he shot the watering. The water I did can. not understand what was happening there. I was like, I thought I thought it had just like worn out and gotten a leak or something. I didn't realize that no, that's what had no. happened. He shot the water can- canister. So now they're both doomed anyway. McTeague, they get into a fight. And this is my favorite, one of my favorite anecdotes. So they've been filming in Death Valley for like two months. It's 120 degrees in Death Valley. They are literally an hour away from any water or food or anything. Everything has to be, this is real life. Like everything has to be shipped into this, to the set. I say with air quotes, because this is not a set. It's a deadly desert. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's time to film the fight, the actors are so exhausted, so worn down, so beaten down by this movie. I think the guy, uh, I think Gibson Gowland had blisters all over his body from the heat. And they start doing the fight. And Eric von Stroheim is standing over them, standing there yelling at them the whole time. Get angry. Get angry. Get angry as you get at me. Be as angry with each other as you feel towards me. Hate each other like you hate me. And that's what fueled their fight at the end. They're basically just pretending each other was the director. Uh, I would never film in Death Valley, by the way. I can't stand like 80 degrees. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) So they, they struggle. McTeague beats Marcus mostly to death. But then... Marcus is a sly dog. What did he do? Should I say fox or cat? He's secretly handcuffed McTeague to him. Yeah. It's an amazing revelation. Like, McTeague looks down and we're both just like, what? Because, <laughs> like, now he's handcuffed to a dead Marcus, guy. Yeah. And, well, Marcus isn't quite dead yet. And McTeague realizes this. And Marcus kind of, like, laugh smiles at him. Yeah. It's a good moment. And so as a final, as the final humanitarian gesture on McTeague's part, he opens up the birdcage. Let's the final bird go. And what happens to the final Dies bird? Because it's in the middle of Death Valley. He throws the bird to go fly away, and it just flops down on the dirt. Well, that, that bird's been through like hell and back <laughs> with him. Like, <laughs> I don't think it was going to survive much longer, anyways. Right, but that's kind of your final kick in the pants. Like, there's there's you, dude. Like, you're not gonna like your symbol, your canary in the coal mine just died. And now you're doomed. I like to think that that guy that McTeague was with originally, the one who found the courts with him, is now a millionaire and is just... Oh, right. Because McTeague was with a guy. They were out like looking for... Quartz. Yeah. And the guy was like, ooh, we've got like... We got like... We, we, we could become millionaires. There's like tons of quartz out here. And that's when McTeague gets his like... Dingle, 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 dingle on the back of his head. And he's like, I've got to run away. And... Uh, he regrets it later. He does. He totally does. As he should. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the end of the movie, McTeague is dead, Trina is dead, Marcus is dead, Maria is dead, Zerko, Zerkov, Zerkow, Zerko is dead, everyone's dead, everyone's dead, everyone's dead. Marcus was killed by his greed for the $5,000 mm-hmm. and his sense that he deserved Trina and the money. Trina was killed by her... What was she killed by? She was killed by her husband. Yeah, like I think you're supposed to feel like she was killed by greed also, 
But it doesn't really come across that way. I don't think she was. Again, I think it was just she needed something that she could control. And yeah. eventually her husband's abuse broke her mind. And right. And she tried to get away from her husband. Mm-hmm. Like she... And not to ever like pin the blame on any woman who stays with an abuser. I know that that's like a bad situation. That's that's not an easy thing to get out of. I would never trivialize that. But like no. the movie, you th- the movie is called Greed, and you're supposed to feel like she's undone by her greed. But it seems more like she just is just spiraling out of control. Like. Like she's going in, she's in a downward spiral and it's just not getting, all she has is these coins. Like, I don't blame her for. And it's not like she stops being kind. Like you see her with the kids. Yeah. Like like, she seems like a decent person. mm -hmm. Um, And she, again, she tries to get away from this man. Like she hides from him and he finds her because he finds. Because her uncle's like, yeah, she took the money out. Yeah. Her uncle says she took the money, but then he's like walking past the school and he sees their wedding photo torn in half in the garbage can, which is a little bit of a coincidence. Like maybe don't throw your wedding. Maybe don't make your giant wedding picture the only thing that's in the garbage can that night. But uh, that's how he finds her. But yeah, McTeague is undone by his own like, I mean, according to the movie, his own like genetics, Mm -hmm. but also like it doesn't even strike me as greed on his part. It's like. He's not trying to become a millionaire. He's just uneducated and frustrated and prone to violence. An alcoholic now. An alcoholic and an abuser. Like, it's not about the... It it becomes about the money, but that's more like a control thing. Like, how dare you not give me your money? Mm -hmm. Like, because when she first gets the money, he seems fine with not spending it. Mm -hmm. He has a successful business. He doesn't sit there and obsess over the $5,000. Even when they're, uh, even when the mother writes and asks for fifty bucks, and Trina's like scheming and conniving, like I could give the my fifty dollars, but my mother wants me to give, wants us to give fifty dollars. I need twenty five bucks from you, and McTeague's like, all right, I'll give you twenty five bucks, like, and then he goes to sleep, and Trina steals money from him, like. They're all playing games, but I don't think he was driven by greed. I think he was driven by his horrible past his horrible past and then his propensity for violence and then his descent into alcoholism and abuse like mm-hmm. uh now zirkov maybe i would say greed is a big part how do they show zirkov's greed and maria's with the lanky fingers let's talk about let's talk about javier Vodette. let's talk about doug jones let's talk about lanky arms there's these cutscenes. Or there's these two arms, and they're just like fondling gold pieces. And plates and stuff. Like Mm -hmm. you see these arms like waving, but they're not normal arms. They're not human arms. They look like, well, I say not human. They look like Javier Baudet's arms from Mama. Mm -hmm. Like they're double jointed and bony with these long fingers. And every time they come on, we just be like, lanky man, like lanky (laughs) arms. Like, uh. They were hella creepy, though. They were very creepy. And considering that they the reconstruction kept reconstructing certain images by repeating things that they had footage of like who knows if the original cut showed them as often as the reconstruction did but they uh they certainly it's they certainly get shown a lot in the reconstruction um so that's greed Mm -hmm. uh let's talk about its connection to Guillermo del Toro okay um so Guillermo del Toro uh, has said that on in, in a list of films when he's talking about 
his favorite movies and his influential movies. He says, an exquisite engraving of human perversity. Greed is a monumental fable that will continue to influence cinema for decades to come as modern and brutal today as it was the day it was released. A perfect reflection of the anxiety permeating the passage into the 20th century and the absolute dehumanization that was to come. So it seems like he approaches greed as not just a bunch of greedy people, but the way we were, as, as we were entering this sort of industrialized society, people were being forced into a less than human role mm -hmm. um, based on, like you said earlier to me, capitalism. Uh, this as, a, as a joke. But still, like this desire, this need to accumulate more and more. Mm -hmm. um, and also, he says a fable. He refers to it as a fable. And uh, an exquisite engraving of human perversity. Do you see aspects of greed reflected in the work of Del Toro? Mm -hmm. Like, in like what regards? Well, there's the, the cart guy from Hellboy 2. Okay. Who refuses to help them yeah. unless they give him something. Um, which is greedy. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. What other movies did he do? There was, um, there's Kronos. Which is? The greed of eternal life. Oh, that's good. That's good. The sort of degeneration, degenerating humanity of the main characters. Mm -hmm. Um, let's see. Um, there was Mimic, which was the greed for fames which led to them not testing the insects properly enough oh i see yeah what do you think I mean, what do you think of our our most contentious movie but how does that play into like crimson peak um well they wanted her money to keep the house and it led to them <laughs> becoming these less than human beings yeah like I see a lot of reflection in that, like that, like people being undone by their like monstrous desires. Uh, it's different in that. I mean, they're, they're in a different situation. They are way upper class in the beginning. I mean, they're even though they're brought low, like they're trying to return to a former glory, whereas greed is about people who are just starting at the bottom. Um, but yeah, like I can see like he's very concerned with people being undone by modernity and what it means to be human and the way we interact the cruelties we inflict on each other uh, even in like pan's labyrinth like how human beings are brought low by their base desires and like the the influence of the outside world mm -hmm. um, i think greed well let's go into let's go into our final thoughts on on this movie i liked it did you end up liking it yeah i didn't like it at first because I was being belligerent and a teenager. Um, <laughs> That's very self-reflective of you. It's, I mean, yeah. Well, you had said before we started watching that. I wasn't sure I was going to like it. Yeah. I mean, I haven't particularly, in, like, I've enjoyed watching the past two movies, but that's because of the way we were watching them and the jokes we were making. Yeah. Like, I'm not sure if I could sit through them just quietly mm -hmm. like that i i would get too antsy but this one i could have just sat through quietly yeah well, there were like long stretches of just us watching the movie yeah uh, which was a first yeah yeah like you would sometimes do like the narration yeah i tended to read out loud 
which was fine. I enjoyed that, but not in like a jokey way. Like, no, I want to. Like, there's characters speaking. There's a lot of dialogue in it. It's more. It was more dialogue heavy than like Nosferatu. Mm-hmm. Like, they there were scenes of just like back and a lot of back and forth, which was fun. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you, but you, do you recommend people watch this version of it? I the, do. The four hour cut. Yeah, the story is amazing. The cinematography is beautiful. There are some, and when he's killing her. There's this light coming from like you don't see it, but there's this light coming from like another room that's like illuminating the scene, and it's bizarre Amazing. and very stylish. And it like represents the death of like the one angel or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I don't know. It's it's an accomplished film, even in its like hacked up. Like people people consider Greed a masterpiece of silent filmmaking, even in its shortest version. Like it came out and it didn't do great in the box office, but that's because of the times. But it it was already hailed as a masterpiece and just a brilliant portrayal of like the degeneration of two of a couple. Seeing it expanded is like you also get these other stories that sort of color and inform and reflect on the themes of mm-hmm. of what's happening on the on the film and with the with the inclusion of the old couple just take some of the heat off of it after a while it's such a it gets bleak in that last hour once he bites her fingers it's all done like you're like this is not going to end well i like to think that the fingers represent her two teeth <laughs> like because she was talking about how she didn't want to be disfigured oh and like i like to rep- I, th- I like to think that like in the beginning it was sorry i just touched your foot it That's was okay. in the beginning like her two teeth like she was so worried about like her appearance and her like physical beauty, but at the end with her fingers, she just didn't care anymore. They should have. No. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> when you look at me like that, it's never anything good. Okay, I was just gonna say they should have played the song "All I Want for Christmas Is My Two Front Teeth" at the end. Of the movie. <laughs> but then I decided not to say it. Because you chastised me. <laughs> so I won't say it. You just did say it. Well, what's done is done. Um, <laughs> that was a bad choice on my part. It's a bad choice on my part. And a terrible end to the episode. Um, also, it wasn't her two front teeth that got knocked out. No, I know. It was so, but it was, this is, so this has been Eric von Stroheim's Greed from 1924. Uh, hearty recommend. You can find it on like Amazon. You can find, uh, you can get it on D- uh, Blu-ray. It's, it's available for purchase. Um, do we, I would recommend watching the reconstruction mm-hmm. or both versions, you know, if you want to like compare and contrast, but it's fairly obvious in the reconstruction what's been added and you can kind of like mentally edit if you want to. Uh, it has a beautiful score that goes along with it. Not an inappropriate score. Like some of the movies we've like that no. weird Nosferatu score. <laughs> no, this was like a beautifully orchestrated Oops, score sorry. that only helps the movie. Like and brings it along. Um, there are there are stretches in the film that could have been could have come across as slower, except the the music they they created for it uh, sort of carries you through. Like mm-hmm. it 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 t- picks up the momentum. I don't know. It's it's just well done. It is. It's just well done. Check it out. Greed, 
if you like del toro's themes of of greed of greed and degeneracy and and monstrous human beings yeah the monsters inside us all check it out speaking of monsters speaking of monsters outside us all what's our next film going to be in the ecstasy of influence i don't know Oh, Frankenstein. Frankenstein. That's right. James Wales. Uh, Frankenstein. This is definitely Frankenstein, not zombies. You got it. You got what I was trying to say, even though the Frankenstein, the monster in this movie is not that Frankenstein. That's a Frankenstein from several films later uh, that people forget that the reason he walks around with his arms out held out is because he actually goes blind in one of the movies. Um, 1931's Frankenstein by James Whale. Frankenstein is not the name of the monster. I know it's not. So I said, the monster. Uh, this is a story of a doctor named Frankenstein. Who is the real monster in this story? Who is the real monster in this story? That was a question. It kind of sounded like a statement. I thought it was a statement, and no. I turned it into a question, then I realized, no, you were asking a question. You said, who is the real monster? But then it sounded like you were saying that yeah, the no, doctor it, I, is I enunciated the real monster. it weirdly. But who is the real monster? Who is the real monster? Was a question we will answer <laughs> next time when we come back with our first non-silent film in the ecstasy of influence, Frankenstein, like I said, 1931, James Whale. Hopefully we'll have a better enunciation it next time. It is also only about an hour long. Oh, so great. It'll be a quick watch and a lively discussion, not a four-hour movie. Good. Because uh, <laughs> while we love greed, some of these movies are a bit long. So we've got a few quick ones coming up because movies were also short sometimes. Wow, really? <laughs> yes. And uh, so, mm, movie's good. It's my Frankenstein. I'm going to cut that. That was a bad idea. <laughs> uh, until next time, I am Phil. And I'm Ollie. And we'll see you when it's Del Toro, Toro time. time.